You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Having sifted through everything I now know about the tiger's wife, I can tell you that this much is fact. In 1941, in late spring, without declaration or warning, German bombs started falling on the city and did not stop for three days. The tiger did not know that they were bombs. He did not know anything beyond the hiss and screech of the fighters passing overhead, missiles falling, the sound of bears bellowing in another part of the fortress, the sudden silence of birds. There was smoke and terrible warmth, a gray sun rising and falling in what seemed like a matter of minutes, and the tiger, frenzied, dry-tongued, ran back and forth across the span of rusted bars, lowing like an ox. He was alone and hungry, and that hunger, coupled with the thunderous noise of bombardment, had burned in him a kind of awareness of his own death, an imminent and innate knowledge he could neither dismiss nor succumb to. He did not know what to do with it. His water had dried up, and he rolled and rolled in the stone bed of his trough, in the uneaten bones lying in a corner of the cage, making that long, sad sound that tigers make. Taya Obreit was born in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia in 1985. She moved to the United States when she was 12 years old. Writing has been published in The New Yorker, Zoetrope, All Story, and The Atlantic. Her first novel, The Tiger's Wife, won the 2011 Orange Prize for Fiction. Thank you for joining me, Taya. Thank you so much for having me. You know, this book is so filled with intimations of the fantastic, and and it's like a a wonderful fantasy in many ways, but it doesn't read like a fantasy. And I really love that sensibility that you've cultivated. And I'm wondering if that's kind of the way you see the world around you. If you see the world around you in omens and intimations of things that come or symbols rising up from the past. You know what? I uh, That's a great question. And the first time I've been asked it, and, and I think I do, uh, or I, I realize that I do in the process of writing this book. Um, you know, when my grandfather died, I went through like a huge crisis of not just this idea of there's there's you know he's dead and he's gone but also the the fact that death exists for all of us and and uh, what now and you know I'd been I'd been raised in this in this way where uh, I'd been raised with three religions and and um, to sort of accept the tradition of religion but there'd been no discussion really of uh, of of what uh, is at stake in terms of spirituality and that kind of thing and what do omens really mean and and um, so I went through like a crisis of, well, I, I, I'm not sure that I, I believe in heaven. So what does this mean about all these things I've heard? Um, and uh, I, I think that in the process of, of writing the book, I, I came to understand that it doesn't, just because we're all going to die doesn't mean that uh, there still isn't awe in life and in, in the fact of life and um, and all these things that led to life in general and, and your own life in particular. And I think that, uh, I think that that's sort of... Uh, that the intimation of the fantastical in the book helped me to realize that about myself. Your book is so full of stories and so rich with story and so much about how story defines us. 
yet you yourself have a great story that from whence the book came. So tell us a little bit about your story growing up in the former Yugoslavia as it was falling apart, I believe, and as there was a giant um, uh, and well-documented uh, in, uh, apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oh, at uh, at Medjugorje. Medjugorje. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've I've been there. Um, I've I, recently I, been to Medjugorje because I was, I was so excited to find out what what it was all about, and I think it, it made its way into the book also because I had mm-hmm. that section with the Virgin of the Waters, you know, and and that uh, where 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 the grandfather goes to and meets the deathless man for the second time, and uh, which wouldn't have happened if I if I hadn't gone there. Um, well, I I was born in in Belgrade, uh, like you said, uh, in a. Um, by ethnic family, uh, my grandfather was Roman Catholic Slovenian, and uh, my grandmother is uh, a Bosnian Muslim from Mostar. And I was born in Belgrade, which is now Serbia. Uh, and my stepfather is Serbian Orthodox, so we celebrate Christmas twice uh, to this day. It's very exciting. But, you know, we, we left in, in 92. I, I grew up in Belgrade, and I have these vivid memories of, of Belgrade and, and it being... Um, very much the way it is today. You know, when I went back, it, it hadn't changed. But uh, my grandfather and I used to go to the zoo a lot. Mm. Uh, and the zoo there is in Kalemegdan Fortress, which is now a, a UNESCO world site. Um, not good. Um, and uh, and it's, it's built into sort of the the structure of the fortress. And it's this wild, magical place that, that just, you know, there's no other zoo like it, uh, even though the cages are a little tight. And uh, I have these vivid, vivid memories of this. And then as the war sort of crept in, it was something that my folks tried to, to keep away from me. And uh, we, we left in, in 92 because we, you know, we were a mixed family. And mixed families at, at the time were sort of forced to um, choose which side of their mixing they would be siding with. Um, and uh, nobody wanted to make that decision. So, so I always thought of it as this, as, as I was growing up elsewhere, as I was growing in Cyprus, and I was growing up in Egypt, which were these fantastic places for childhood. I mean, and, and I'm such a history nerd anyway, probably as a result of that, but also kind of was before then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was exposed to all these incredible stories about, you know, and in Cyprus, it was all about Richard the Lionheart because he had a, you know, he had a castle there and all this presence of antiquity. And then in Egypt, it was just mummies, mummies, mummies. And the field trips that we would take there when, when I was a kid were like, you know, later on this week, we'll be going to El Alamein, like for more recent history. And then the week after that, we'll go to the Step Pyramid of Zoss, you know, Josser, and and it'll be... You know, great education for you guys. And, you know, the next thing you know, you're 10 years old and you're sitting on Camelback and you're going on. So it was this really wild, <laughs> awesome That's time. That's amazing. It's like it's going to Indiana Jones uh, High School. I know. It's it's so true. Yeah. You know, you, the, pre, the the uniform for the high school was like the Panama hat and the whip. Um, and uh, when you graduated, you got the little little leather jacket. But uh, but it was it was just, you know, I, I, I can't I feel so grateful for that childhood because, you know, pe- people say to me, you know, you, 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 you had fled your home country. Like, how do you? feel about that you know and, and it, it is a heartbreaking thing what happened but I'm I'm so glad that I got to experience these stories and these places that that live within their own mythology because they really do I mean when you when you meet somebody in Egypt who is the proprietor of a store that's in a building that's you know 600 years old he's got a lot to tell you about the building and a lot of it is probably made up but <laughs> hey you know <laughs> so I, I think that that um made its way into my writing as well. 
you know, you mentioned the age of the buildings, and that's something that I noticed in this book that I, that really struck me was that it's so great. All the settings, you can just feel the ancient uh, age of everything just creeping up out of the ground. And I think that gives the whole book a real different kind of vibe. Even in the setting parts that are set in the current day, I mean, you still feel that that connection to something ancient. And because we didn't live then, a lot of it we have to manufacture our own imaginations. And it seems, you know, not so different from Tolkien's Middle Earth. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I think that I, I felt that for the first time when I went back um, and we went to Slovenia and we were we went to Lake Bled, which is this, you know, it's this just magical fairy lake um, in the middle of the Slovenian mountains. And there's like a lake and a beautiful little isolated island with like a bunch of palm trees and a monastery on it. And you can view it from all these, you know, um, and church on it. And you can view it from all these these vistas. And there's like a grand castle at the time. It's crazy. I mean, and and. Um, I got there and I was like, this is the land of my forefathers. <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and, th- th- but the weight of it was, was incredible because, you know, half an hour just drive away is Ljubljana, which is like this totally modern city. Um, and so you, you live with, with these markers that, you, that have layer upon layer of history on them. You know, this is, this is the place where in the 1200s this happened, and then 600 years later it was also significant because a more recent empire came and trampled it too, you know? <laughs> um, and um, You know, that kind of age is incomprehensible to us in America. I mean, we're, we're looking back at the 60s and thinking <laughs> that's ancient history. <laughs> you know, I was just at, on, on the drive down today. We were just at, at Hearst Castle, um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, they have, a, they have a, 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 I guess, a, a room where the ceiling had been, had been brought in and, and made in Spain in the, um, in the early 1400s. And, and she said, before Columbus. And I was like, oh, my God, the ceiling's older than the, than the country. <laughs> Because it, yeah, but 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 it's it's you know, but it's it's uh, I don't think that it's just the 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 youth of America, you know, the the the, the youngness of America. It's also the fact that it's so big. Mm-hmm. So even the you know the 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 stuff that does date back all the way to the beginning, it's it's widespread. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know in the Balkans, it's like we have a very tiny area. We must cramp all our history <laughs> like yeah, a very small surface. You can't walk ten feet without. Just tripping over somebody else's uh, tomb from exactly. antiquity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, no, someone's already buried here. <laughs> yeah. You have uh, two settings, kind of current and then a little bat- bit back in the past, and tying together these two settings is the character of the grandfather. And you made such an interesting dis- uh, decision in this book to make kind of the primary relationship between the daughter and the grandfather. That's so- really unusual, and it... It keeps perfectly in tone with the rest of the book, which seems to be like about two steps to the left and two steps to the right to the world most of us live in. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, um, I I think that, um, you know, I mean, obviously there was a correlation there between what I needed to write, you know, what mm-hmm. I wanted to write about and then what I needed to write about, which was, you know, I, I had to go through this experience of grieving for my grandfather by writing this book, which I didn't know until I was about halfway through the book. Um but I think that in general, I, I've always really been interested in the stories of, of that generation, of my, of my grandfather's generation. He was born in 32, and um, I, I feel like people in general, when they're fascinated by their grandparents, it has to do with, with this notion that 
um, your parents are too just too close. You know, the world was pretty similar, and and they're always telling you when I was your age, mm-hmm. uh, and what they seem to tell you is is not that different from what you're going through. But when your grandparents tell you when when I was your age, then it's really you know when I was your age, we didn't have radio. You know, we would we would sit around and and look <laughs> and stare at the wall. That you know, <laughs> sort of, and then you become curious. You're like, then how did you how did you get by staring at the wall and and um. They're already in in the realm of myth, myth just by being so far removed from from your condition in life. You know, um, my 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 grandmother, I, I you know doesn't want to see my iPod. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't blame her. It's I, <laughs> I kind of don't blame her either. My, the music I love is terrible. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, but but it's um, yeah. Well, it must be her. That your iPod to her must be some like could must really seem like some kind of weird and kind of potentially dangerous magic. I mean, and highly incomprehensible, too. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, she she, she resisted very early, you know, the notion of the computer. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that, you know, there's there's always that fear. Her, her big thing is it's just got rays in it. You know, don't mm-hmm. it's gonna which I I don't know maybe it does. <laughs> maybe I am getting radiation in my head from my iPod. But um, but I you know just the notion that you can when when she was when she was a kid she tells me you know she would sit around in front of the like the fact that they got a radio was was just novelty were the first people in the town to get a radio and and people would come over to the house to look at this you know wooden radio that had you know bone knobs on it and now you know this is my whole collection of music on this thing that's the size of a chewing gum pack like it's it's um it's crazy the leaps that we've made so i think that that connection to the past is really it's like the last hook that you have in your life that's also in the real past yeah now um you talked a little bit about this, but and it it certainly crops up in the book, and you do a great job of talking about uh, the effect of war, and it's what's so so great about it is that the way you describe the war is that it doesn't have any impact because for the people to a degree for the people living in the city because they're not exactly fighting it, but it's out there and it has some resonance for them. And the way you describe the uh, the way the government deals with it is so much reminiscent of the way the previous administration, as it were, dealt with the, quote, war on terror. And there's essentially a war on terror going on in your land, and it's tearing you apart. And you describe to us how the war tried to tear your family apart. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I... I, I well, the des- the descriptions of of the effects of the war on on the city are, um, you know, I, I had the advantage of, of of meeting a lot of people who were who were both in my family, you know, af- after the after the fact, and then friends of of my generation who were very willing to talk about um, the effect that the war had on them and this sort of need to this need to to, to uh, rebel and to deal with it and then to, to feel like like feel like you were still somehow affected by it when you weren't you know and mm-hmm. then when you were affected by it it was like whoa too close you know but um but the I think that we the the, the big weight of the war on, on our family sort of personally was uh, was that it uh, we, we, we were scattered. Mm-hmm. All over the place, you know. My grandparents and my mother and I moved, and then my grandmother's whole family stayed, and 
there was, you know, imprisonment, on, and then there was fleeing, and, and somehow we all ended up back in the States, which is really after, you know, any major disaster, everybody somehow always ends up in the States, which is awesome. Um, That's great. Congratulations. Well, <laughs> thank you. Um, and then, uh, and then, then in 99, of course, uh, the bombing of Belgrade, which, where my grandparents were still living at the time. So that was then like a whole different kind of tearing mm. apart um but i i uh, i think that uh, in in the book it's uh, it's a lot a lot of of what ends up uh, the rifting that takes place in the book is is uh, you know taken from from the stories of people who stayed and uh, and they weren't pleasant stories even when they were you know mild yeah. now the book itself has a, a beautiful arc overall and it has these kind of it reminds me of a a cathedral where you have a whole big arch and then there's all these little frescoes inside that kind of make up the arch that hold the whole thing together but each one in itself tells a little story that that in a sense is also uh, a reflection of the big story and a mirror you know kind of its opposite at the same time and I think you do a really great job with that so did these did this book just flow off the tip of your pen in the order we read read it or did it did you like say, oh, I want to write about this part first and then kind of have to work it back in. Yeah, I wrote about, I'm sorry, I realize I'm, I'm nodding <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> I'm nodding vigorously. I wrote it uh, sort of with the greatest emotional investment first. Like mm -hmm. I, I would write the uh, parts that I was most interested in and that I felt were flowing really well first and then, um, you know, put put the the add additional stuff in and, and hope that later it would catch up. Uh, which wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been given extra time to sit there and stare at it, you know, as as, as if it were a wall uh, in my grandmother's day. I the, the sections with with the tiger were written first. Mm -hmm. um, Those are very intense and so beautifully crafted. Thank you, thank you. I mean, it was uh, it was a, it was a serious indulgence to write mm -hmm. the tiger because it was you know it was just a complete imagination. Like I don't know what a tiger thinks, you know, <laughs> and and and, and um, what a tiger smells. And and uh, I, I really felt, you know, I really felt very liberated to, to be able to, to do that. And uh, it was actually, I mean, that was the, the short story that, that was written uh, that was terrible mm -hmm. and that was written uh, as the jumping off point for this, you know, featured the tiger and, and a deaf mute woman and then um, the little boy who then becomes the grandfather in, in the novel. Mm -hmm. And the short story was just awful, I mean, in every possible way. But the, the tiger sections then needed to be written first. And then as they grew, this need for the deathless man emerged. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though those sections were written second, they are the most intact sections mm -hmm. um, in, in the final draft of the novel. And I felt, I felt the most disconnected uh, from, from certain sections of, that ended up in the, in the, in the tiger narrative and mm -hmm. then certain sections that ended up in the present day narrative because I just hadn't gotten that feeling from home. Mm -hmm. um, there were details, um, you know, feelings, uh, not accuracies, but um, uh, authenticities that I just wasn't quite in touch with until I went vampire hunting for Harper's mm. um, for a nonfiction piece. Mm. And because we, we were thrown in during during the, the process of, of researching that into some situations that required us to probe into village myth mm -hmm. uh, and then daily life and to ask questions about the war, it really brought a whole new understanding of the Balkans to me. And I was able to go back and rewrite the parts of the book that I, I just wasn't that in tune with mm. um, so that everything was sort of brought up to the same level of um, attachment. 
Uh, tell us about this uh, Harper's Vampires piece. Oh, it was a it was a, a piece. Uh, I, I pitched a couple of stories to, to Harper's and a couple of um you know ideas to Harper's and uh, then as as a, as a sort of last. Um, like a haha, I said, and there's the, the vampires in the Balkans too, and and uh, you know, would you would you like to hear about that? And that was the one that they, cho- <laughs> the one that they chose, um, and we uh, we went to I, I went to the the Balkans and then sort of met up with the two people who were willing to tolerate my weird assignment, um, and we went to all these villages. Uh, that had supposedly been connected with real uh, cases of vampirism, documented cases of vampire vampirism in the in the late 1800s, and we found that most of these places really do have a connection to that myth today, to whatever myth they have respectively, uh, sorry, to whatever respective myth they have in the village. Um, and uh, people live with their grandparents' stories there. They, they build on this notion of there was a vampire here, and now there's several instances of, you know, recent hauntings or something. And uh, it was just incredible because I expected to go and uh, find nothing or, or find something utterly different than, than what I found, but connected back to the book in, in a really real way. Uh, absolutely it connected to the book. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the book is that <clears throat> you create this world where... Um, the people believe in the, in the supernatural, and they believe in it really strongly. And as a reader, we're put in this kind of really odd position. We want to, as a reader, for me at least, I kind of want to b- believe with it in that stuff. And, and it's great. It's a really great way to experience the world. And I think that one of the ways you accomplish this is with your absolutely remarkable prose. Thank you. It's like you... Um, it's truncated. I think you have a kind of tr- slightly truncated grammar where you like pull out words out of sentences. So they don't, I mean, it reads really beautifully, but it, it doesn't scan the way um, what is normally called, quote, transparent prose in American fiction does. It scans in a way that that goes with, the, that is in tune with the setting in the Eastern European setting. Thank you. And, and, and I had, um, it, particularly for the dialogue sections, I had sort of worked on getting this because there's a very particular lilt to the way people tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and when, when, when I know that when relatives of mine who, who still, you know, are, are heavily rooted in, in Serbo-Croatian, uh, speak English, there is this sort of backwards way that they construct their sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to bring that into the dialogue and then some of it seeped into the, 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 you know, prose as well. And, uh, I mean the, the, the narrative. And, um, so I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Thank well, you. it, 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 it makes a reading experience really vivid and contributes to, uh, immersing us in the sensory world in a way that uh, I think <clears throat> this book really has the ring of uh, fairy tales and folklore. There's a lot of it has a very folkloric feel, and I'm wondering how much uh, research you did or or how much you read in terms of just to get that kind of folkloric narrative voice, especially in the deathless man. Uh, part, portions of the novel. I'm a I'm a folklore fiend, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, you know collect sort of books of folklore and and, and uh, you know Serbian epic poetry and then Russian folklore and German folk tales. So, mm-hmm. um, I, but I've been doing that since I was little. I mean, not collecting them, but reading them. It was something that I I, um, 
loved and uh, Grimm's fairy tales and and uh, everything. So I think that 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 voice was sort of there, accessible from 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 my reading as a child, and then my you know obsession with folk tales as an adult. Um, but I didn't take particulars from from Slavic myth. I mean, there's you know the, the archetype of the deathless man exists, and mm-hmm. that was that was the only real myth that I stole from. That would um, be Koshai. Uh, no, it's not Koshai the Deathless. Oh. It's it's actually um, it's uh, Godfather Death. Oh, okay. And uh, it's it's usually you know there's it's uh, the story usually involves um, you know the third son of a third son, and he's you know he's a little um, you know he's a little shy or or uh, or intimidated by his older brothers, and he's off in the woods grumbling about something and. Uh, meets death or, or, or is sort of uh, set up to have death as his godfather um, or, uh, you know, there's some sort of relation to death. And then he, um, death makes a gesture of, um, of trying to claim him as a, as a, as a, as, as someone to, to sympathize with. And he accidentally tricks or, or disgruntles death in some way and, and, or traps him in, in something. And, uh, and is punished either by immortality or, or immediate death. Um, and it's actually, it's usually a very, very short story, um, mm-hmm. very short folktales, like a paragraph long. And, and it's, you know, it's supposed to have that very moralistic, like, you must die for, for that is the point of life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and aren't you sad that you're not dead? Uh, and uh, I, I, because of what I was going through with the death of my grandfather, I thought, wow, well, under, under what circumstances could immortality possibly be a punishment? Because I, I just don't get it. And, um, I wanted to explore that and started writing this character who was supposed to be really quite sinister. And when I wrote him at first, you know, he had like a like a really intimidating hat and like like a coat and, you know, an axe on his shoulder. And he was like always skulking around corners. And uh, I um, and then as, as, as the as the as the story went on, he became this funny sort of unfortunate figure who who really is, you know, speaks agrammatically and uh, and carries this cup around and it's just always getting you know, thrashed by people who 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 want to um whom he's trying to help and he's trying to help out with this understanding that yes you're supposed to die like just embrace <laughs> it and uh, and I didn't expect that and and I grew quite attached to him but uh, but his was the you know the um the only folktale that I that I pulled from although as it, as it turns out there's quite a lot of folktale I learned this recently there's a lot of folktales that uh invoke um that that have the the central uh, image of a of a young woman and um uh, like a shaman animal like like mm-hmm. the, the 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 leader of that particular animal's pack um and then they make some sort of pact together i didn't know this before and this leads me to to my next question about all the wonderful animals and the way you use animals in the kind of totemic manner uh and, and i think that's what's so i i i just love that that feeling of you know the the, the the talking animals, even though even if they don't talk, they speak to us, and and you put us in that tiger's mind in a way that is really intense and exciting. Thank you, thank you. I've recently um, I, I get asked about the animals a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, not just with this book, but because they they have apparently a tendency to show up in my other fiction as well. And mm-hmm. I had no idea about this until somebody you know started started pointing out like you write a lot of animal stories, like there's a lot of animals. So why? And uh, I had no idea. 
And uh, for a long time, I, I at first I, I was able to say, okay, the animal acts as a as as a kind of like it has a totemic kind of you know role. There's a an animal is out of place in the world of this character. It gets thrown into the character's path, and now the character has to reroute. Uh, but I didn't understand why. And uh, the reason why I recently learned goes back to the very first question you asked me, and this view of the world. And uh, I'm still I'm still figuring this out, so bear with me. Um, I, I I've been listening uh, to Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth over and over again. I don't know if you if you if you've um, read it or, or seen the the mm-hmm. the. the um, the program or, or heard uh, heard the, the interviews, but he, it's, it's his interviews with Bill Moyers and, and mm-hmm. uh, he's this, you know, historian of, of myth. And, and he says in, in one particular segment of, uh, of, the, of the program in relation to these myths about animals uh, that are developed by primitive tribes who hunt them, he, he says the psyche that sees an it in an animal or in an object or in a, in a historical moment or in any aspect of the world is entirely different than the psyche that sees a thou. Mm-hmm. And when he said, you know, he said that, I was like, oh my God, it goes back to everything. It covers everything because I realized that those characters who have a relationship with any animal, whether it's the elephant, whether it's the tiger, uh, in, in my work are bordering on, on the edge of making a decision about how they view the world. You know, is and and that view is is it an it or is it a thou? Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that idea of uh, of, the, of the first question you asked me. Yeah, the world, the a world of the fantastic elements where, in which elements of the fantastic are, and that's what I love about this book is that you use these the the power of using of the elements of the fantastic is that they allow us to externalize to to discuss in plot what otherwise might have to be some kind of uh, dreary internal monologue. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and um, thank you. <laughs> and to, to, because we have these great stories of the tiger and, you know, hunting these things down, you get to say things in a way that you just couldn't say in the dreary internal monologue. That's true, and 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 that's like a, to me that was like a big indulgence because I I um one of like there's there's a couple of great fears that I have with my writing. One is um, over explaining everything. One is under explaining everything, and the third is the, the dreary monologue, and uh, which goes you know both both ways. You can over or under explain anything in a dreary monologue. So it, it, for me, it was like the ultimate thing to be able to do. So thank you. <laughs> well, I, I think that that your prose because that that kind of truncated prose that you write with that's so, but also it's just filled with a bazillion great words. I mean, there's all sorts of like really great words. You'll be reading this book and think, wow, isn't that a perfect word choice? Why is that in there? And it's kind of unusual. Do you like go through and kind of like pick out stuff afterwards? Or do those words just come out of your mind uh, uh, of their own accord? Uh, occasionally they do. Um, they do come out of my mind. But um, I, I think that uh, sometimes I'll hit, a, I'll hit a wall with language. And I'll think of the Serbo-Croatian word. Uh, shockingly, because my grasp of Serbo-Croatian grammar is not good enough to be able to write in it, but sometimes I'll think of 
the, the word that I'm missing in English is absolutely perfect in Serbo Croatian. So what what is the right translation for it? You know, and uh, and then it's in that effort that 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 I you know might come up with an unusual word because it would fit with the Serbo Croatian, but it it doesn't quite fit with the English. But it fits the way I want. You know, in in my other. Well, In my other psyche, it fits. <laughs> it, it gives your, to a degree, you know, it's almost like the prose has an accent that's really pleasing. Oh, well, lovely. I like that. Thank <laughs> you. Like, you know, it, it's like kind of, uh, if it were English, it'd be like hearing, you know, uh, uh, oh, I can, I'm blanking it, you know, uh, Alec Guinness say it, you know, in that rich, rich English language nice. accent, you know, or, <laughs> and, and that, that's kind of how th- this uh, feels to read. It really feels kind of, kind of resonant and, and like, or it's, it, reading this is almost like a, being in a little bit of a cathedral. It's maybe dank and kind of has some holes in it and, and some dirt on the floor, but still. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, that is the, that, I think that's the nicest thing anyone said about Thank you. The cathedral. The cathedral. Thank you. Thank you. you. Tell us about The Jungle Book. Was that a big part of your youth? It was. And, uh, you know, it was the first book that I um, read in Serbo Croatian. Mm-hmm. Um, it you, was You were brought up speaking Serbo Croatian. I was. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. English is a second language. Yes, it is. That's yeah. kind of like ultra super scary remarkable. <laughs> you know, well I, I um I started learning it when I was, you know, when I was about seven and, mm-hmm. and sort of already had a grasp on it because my grandfather kept bringing like bootleg Disney films home. Oh. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, they, they didn't have uh, subtitles then. So I, I didn't understand anything that was going on. But, you know, I got the plot, like Bambi's mother dies, like we we're all very sad. <laughs> but I didn't understand the, the language. Mm-hmm. So I would watch these films over and over again and learn phonetically what they were saying, even though I had no context for what was being said, then I would walk around the house and, you know, recite lines from, like, Bambi to my mother, who who, who, mm-hmm. who wasn't happy about it. Uh, but, uh, but so I, I had, like, a, I had a base in some way for the way the words were supposed to sound. And then when I started <laughs> to find out what they meant, I was like, oh, I got it, you know, mm-hmm. very, very, very quickly. But so I, I read it uh, in Serbo-Croatian mm-hmm. um, when, I was, when I was a kid, and I had al- already had it read to me and then read it again in English. And in the book, it was originally supposed to just function as a way for the grandfather as a child to know what a tiger is. I mean, th- th- I, I didn't think that he would, that a child in the 1940s in an isolated village would have much access to, you know, the, the concept of a tiger. Yeah, National Geographic. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's got his little subscription. No, um... So that was that was a very simple way to do it, and if if a little you know clumsy on my part, and uh, then the the book you know it just took off in and its significance in, in in the book became massive like the book becomes a talisman like a, a generational you know message tablet between the grandfather and the granddaughter that transcends you know even his death and and who knew that that was going to happen I I didn't. I also stepped on the landmine of, of Kipling's controversy here because I didn't realize that he was, you know, considered quite a controversial author. To me, he was just a, you know, children's book writer who also happened to write, you know, Kim, to mm. have written Kim. But in the workshop, I was told, you know, you this you're you're loading this with something, and w- w- what significance does it have because of his colonialist, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know, I don't, I never heard about this. <laughs> well, for me, it it 
when I was a kid, the very one of the earliest records I ever had was a record of Basil Rathbone reading the Jungle Book. Oh, and it lovely. was really remarkable. So it just, I mean, just personally, it struck me. I kind of, I could, as I was reading this book, and I, every time I you mention that, I kind of hear Basil, Basil Rathbone. Oh, I'd be back in Grandma's house listening to it on the little stereo Victrola. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. That's awesome. I have to track that down. That's that sounds like a, a wonderful way to experience. I, yeah, I would imagine so. You have uh, these kind of great set pieces and, and stories, and I'd like you to, you know, I've I've talked to a bazillion authors about set pieces in, in, in various novels, but it's only when I, I was thinking about your book that I thought of them as stories and thought of the import of a set piece as story, and, and I think that you use that really, really well, and to... to like, you know, rivet us and focus us on this scene with the tiger or, you know, the bear and, and, and or, you know, the fire. And there's all these great little, you know, or the deathless man scenes. There's all these great little stories and set pieces in there. And do you, when you're, when you're immersed in that writing, how do you like uh, just contain yourself to that little piece? I do. Uh, I think that when I, when I, um, when I'm writing without an intense attachment to a particular scene, mm-hmm. um, that's when I'm sort of the least happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of hunt around in different sections trying to find something to latch onto that'll really sort of, you know, sink. And then usually it's the set piece mm-hmm. that comes first. It's usually the the setting of the, pl- like the setup of the place, you mm-hmm. know, the... the <laughs> the, the the stage is prepared and then the players come on and here we are you know it's 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 very um it's the way I, I bring bring myself into it too mm. and uh, once that once I'm able to latch on to it you know that then then I'm able to write all the way through what it needs to become um, and then with that in place sometimes it'll lead straight to the next scene to whatever next scene is necessitated by uh, by the way it's ended up in the last one so yeah yeah it's uh, I'm, I'm I'm so glad that that, that it works for, for a reader as well because you know um, I feel like there's a lot of things that, that that I use as a writer and that a lot of writers use you know to crutch their own way into whatever you know to, into into the the scene being necessary, immediate, real, really feeling right, and you know, and I cut a lot of my descriptive passages that I've used to get myself in, you know, uh, on the way out, and um, and so I'm 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 glad to know that um, in their modified form, they actually do work. With <laughs> <laughs> well, too, uh, this book has people that you know we kind of think about and want to talk to at before and afterwards. And I love all these characters, and even the kind of the 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 I guess bit players you'd call them, you know, maybe only have one scene, walk on scenes, seem really there and present in the narrative. And I think this is in part to do with your prose. But I'm wondering um, how much they exist beyond the narrative for you, and all the characters. I, I mean, do you are you one of these writers who has you know ten thousand pages of Bible for the three hundred page book? Sort of. I um, the 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 sections for uh, the the for instance the bit players that got a lot of airtime like mm-hmm. um like Luca and the apothecary and uh, Darisha the bear, 
Um, it all started with Luca, who was supposed to be just a straight-up villain. Um, and, you know, I, it was something, you know, in the chapter, it was, it was something like, he was a bad man. Here are the bad things he did. You don't like him. You know, you, the reader, <laughs> dislike him. And it was, it, was just, it was just terrible, and it didn't work. And I didn't dislike him because I didn't know why. And so I started to write this backstory to sort of help myself through it because I'd heard, you know, that some writers you know, know what their characters had for breakfast that morning. And, and, uh, and isn't this a great way to get to know this person so that you can then render them real on the page? And that backstory actually became really relevant to the book mm -hmm. um, and to this idea of myth building and then carried over to Darisha and then carried over to, to the apothecary as well. Um, but for, my, for myself, for the characters that didn't get a backstory um, and uh, even the parts of the backstory that don't make it onto the, the page, uh, I, I actually don't do uh, notes so mm -hmm. much as um, music. I, I, um, when I write, I like to feel, you know, you have to take breaks, you have to, or you, you know, your eyes like melt and, and horrible things happen, the computers now, you know, <laughs> radiation all the time. And, um, but uh, so when I, when I take breaks, um, I like to have a playlist for the character or a playlist for the scene that's made up of music that has associative, you know, that has associations with that character or that scene. And then I wander off and, you know, listen to the music or drive around and listen to the music. And then that becomes the character's backstory for me. And there's elements that I think about in relation to that music that never make it on the page and have nothing to do with the actual book um, and are still part of my consciousness what it has to do with the character. So when I, you know, when I reread the book, I was like, where's the part where, oh, <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, can we get these playlists? <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I mean, I think there, there's a, there's a, uh, that would be a great thing to put on your website. That might be fun. Yeah, that could, that could be some, that could be a project. People, to do. I yeah. would love to have playlists, to, a playlist to read it to as well. Now, what kind of music do do you read or do you, do you think about? Um, I mean, what are we talking about here? Is with it anything and everything? We're talking about. Um, like Shostakovich or Bob Dylan? Both. Oh, okay. Both. Like, uh, and except not Shostakovich. <laughs> no, but, um, but it'll be, you know, it'll be, um, it'll be like something out of the Nutcracker. And right after that, um, you know, uh, Springsteen or, or uh, Tom Waits. And after that, you know, um, like a medley from Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> Not really. Or, or you know, something uh, something uh, Disney-related. Um, you know, a little bit of John Williams thrown in for, like, the action portion where the character is being, you know, like, tried or tested in some way. And then there's, you know, there's, like, a whole album for the character's, you know, 30-second scene in the book. And, um, and, you know, you just listen to it over and over and over again. Um, and uh, it, it builds this, you know, and then and then you... Well, in your mm. copious spare time, put those playlists up. Okay, <laughs> you know, I, I might, I might do that. That might be, that might be a fun thing to do. You know, pe people might hate me. There might be copyright infringement or something. But, uh, but uh, no, I think you can put playlists up. I mean, that's just, true. Just uh, iTunes playlists, and if people have the music, they can. If they don't, they can buy it. Then, Mr. Springsteen and uh, Shostakovich's heirs are happier. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> now. Uh, well, no, there's a kind of an interesting image that recurs in this book is bones in the dirt. And is that something that you dug up or happened to you? Because that happens a few times. And maybe it's just me, but I, I find that kind of 
creepy and haunting and interesting? You know, um, every so when we lived in, I think this must go somehow back to to uh, this must somehow go back to life in Egypt because they would tell you that literally all you had to do is scratch a little bit and you'd find something and and people did like people found you know bits of pottery and suspicious looking you know grayish things in in the dirt of our school um and uh, and and this isn't you know i don't mean to suggest in any way that like when you dig at a crossroads in the balkans you're going to come out with a vase and a heart in it and you just have to get rid of you know the, the ashy heart and you've got a nice new piece of pottery like this <laughs> Um, but, uh, but, uh, there, there is this notion, I think, um, that, that, that came to me in Egypt, um, into, you know, came to, to my consciousness in Egypt of, of, um, living on top of the dead. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a whole section of Cairo that's called the city of the dead where, where people, um, reside in close proximity to the crypts of their buried ancestors. Um, and, uh, and that was something that, you know, we, we lived with this notion. We didn't live in such a place, but you know, it, it was uh, quite common. So I think that, um, yeah, the, it is creepy, but, uh, well, part I of the like childhood, that. I guess. I, I, li- I like that idea of living on top of the dead because that seems to be a big part of the book. I mean, to a, a degree, the grandfather, you're, you're, main character in the book is dead from the beginning that's right so that's an interesting approach yeah that that yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah i guess it it, it correlates to that uh yeah theme in the book (laughs) now i have to ask about some uh, one of my favorite hobby horses that you put in here which is the blessed virgin mary apparition i find those really really fascinating there's so much cultural grist going on in those places where those happen uh, whether it's uh, Meigore or uh, Marping, and, and it doesn't matter. So tell me about why you put that in there and, and just uh, talk about your experience of it. Because, I mean, actually, you would have been the perfect age to be running up the hills of Meigore and, and seeing those, those women. That's true. That's true. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yet I, I didn't um, – somehow I managed to – we have a house – um, on the coast, uh, on the Adriatic coast, uh, mm-hmm. in Zaustrog, um, like an hour's drive from Medjugorje, like an hour and a half drive from Medjugorje. And somehow I managed to reach the age of 20 without knowing about Medjugorje, which is like a big, horrible thing. But in the meantime, um, I had developed an interest in sort of Catholic, um, in religious Catholic themes and, you know, the, 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 the um, the portrayal of the Virgin and the portrayal of different saints and how, you know, how it's used. So, so, uh, so when I was told, you know, Medjugorje is this place and it's around the corner, I was like, we have to go there. And, um, I, uh, even though I wasn't raised with, uh, with, with the, that particular Medjugorje myth, um, going there, I felt was sort of a pilgrimage. Like I, mm-hmm. I like to take those pilgrimages to places that, that are said to have, you know, because what makes it sacred isn't, the historicity of what happened it's the story that mm-hmm. people are telling about it and the story develops and grows and uh, and let's face it in a couple of places it's, it's just a story no matter what people say um and uh and so you know it, it was just fascinating to me and uh, that idea of catholic or orthodox or islamic sacredness in the balkans actually usually stands on a previous sacred space mm-hmm. that, yes. that, uh, 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 that's shared from pagan times. Mm. 
just like a lot of Balkan superstitions that, you know, exist among Muslims and, and uh, Christians alike. Well, you know, one of the things that interested me about, uh, has always interested me about the Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions is that they're, when you, you have to kind of like knock your mind a, a couple of rows aside and think about it, this is like the supernatural. This is pure super. This is like Bob Marley's ghost or whatever. It's it's something you know, uh, or it's every bit as supernatural as you know the haunting of Hill House or any of that stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> but the intent, most supernatural apparitions have a malign intent. Intent. Right. They're scary. They're frightening. They're reminders of death. The Blessed Virgin. <laughs> Not the Mary. Virgin. No, no, no. She's. She, so I think that's a really interesting. Um, aspect to these things. And also, too, they always appear where there's kind of these cultural schisms happening. That's true. That's true. As, as, it's some sort of, it's like a, it's like a, like a, 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 a salve, right? Or how, mm -hmm. is, is that how you pronounce it? Um, it's, uh, it, it, uh, it happens to try to hold, hold things together mm -hmm. um, just as they're dissolving. And, and that's true. I never thought about that. But, you know, essentially it's um, that normally if you were to say, I saw a woman in that waterfall, or I saw a woman, you know, appear suddenly on the top of that cliff, and then she was dressed in white and she vanished. You know, it wouldn't be a good thing. People would be going there with those, you know, um, the PKE meters. That's right. One of the things I think that uh, makes your book s so good is this great story arc from the from the beginning to the end. Part of the story I did know. I knew the. Uh, the arc of the story for the tiger's wife, because it, it stayed very close to that terrible short story that never made it. Um, and uh, I'm the kind of person who really has to write towards an outline. You know, mm -hmm. I, I have to write towards a particular goal or otherwise, you know, I, I have no idea where I'm going and then things branch off in ways that they shouldn't even, you know, even when things are supposed to branch off, they don't branch off in the right way. Uh, one of the things that happened with the writing of this book is that by the time I got to the end, um, the end goal had changed. <laughs> so when I, you know, when I did the revision, I sort of restructured. I was like, now this is the outline. Um, and, uh, and so, so that was a surprise to me. And, and part of the surprise of, of writing a novel, which is that unlike the short story, you're not finishing it 48 hours later. So you really don't know where you're going. <laughs> you're stumbling around in the dark. I've been speaking with Taya Obraid. Her new novel is The Tiger's Wife. Thank you for joining me, Taya. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.